Today's reading is Mark 4, 1 to 20. Again, he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun came, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and one hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and one hundredfold. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So this summer we're going through a new series in which we've titled Short Stories by Jesus. And in this series we are looking at the parables that Jesus himself told. And when Jesus taught, he taught by using stories, which is significant. And last week, in our introduction to the series, we we suggested that Jesus told stories as a way to invite us to participate. He told stories in order to share what the kingdom of God is like, that it has broken in, and that life is to be oriented around that. And he provides, through his stories, visions for life. And so he calls us to participate and invites us to participate in kingdom life. 
And so we suggested there are a few postures in which we can come to the text or which, in which we should come to the text. One of those postures is a posture of curiosity. By being engaged and paying attention to the text so that we're curious and that we begin to ask questions. We also suggest that we should come to the text in order to be surprised. Not coming already knowing what it's going to say, but letting it speak afresh and in a new way so that we might be challenged. The scriptures invite us into a conversation with the scriptures, but then also with one another. And so we encouraged all of us to find dialogue partners with whom we might be able to engage the text, to ask questions together. Because the goal of these parables and understanding them is not certainty, but formation. The parables and these stories seek to form us as a people. And we do that together, engaging them together and sharing in them together. So my question is, have you thought through, have you chosen your dialogue partners? Consider thinking who those might be so that after this, after our worship service, that it doesn't just simply stop our engagement with God, our engagement with Scripture doesn't stop with when I'm done, because trust me, I don't know everything, but that actually we can go and engage the text together. So be considering who those people might be. All right, so this morning, parable of the sower as it's traditionally named. You heard it read, and you actually heard its explanation read. And so in my thinking of actually going through the text, some questions that I had immediately that I'm going to pose to you, and perhaps you had some of your own, here are a couple, just a couple of questions that jumped out at me right away when I first read the text. What's the deal with the sower? If he is supposed to be like a farmer, he is a ridiculous one. He obviously doesn't know how to farm. And he's very extravagant and very uncautious about where he's just going to throw the seeds. Because usually a sower or a farmer would be a little bit more intentional, at least as, I'm, as I've been trained to think about that. And if, the, if it's called the parable of the sower, that's sort of interesting in that the sower is only there for a very brief time. He kind of jumps in right to the story, and then he leaves. He has very little screen time, yet it's often referred to as the parable of the sower. But I wonder if it's really about that at all, because it seems Jesus seems to spend more time on the soils. So perhaps parable of the soils might be a better name. So then if we step back from the parable itself and see where it's found, a couple more questions might be, why is this the first one? And where is it placed in the actual greater narrative of the Gospel of Mark? And why is there so much time spent on this one parable, which is actually rare? Often Jesus' stories are short, and there are no explanations as to what they might mean. This one is different, which begs the question, why? Well, starting with the beginning, this as the parable, I think that is so essential to understanding what Jesus is trying to do with this parable and why he tells it. Beginnings to things are significant. I don't know if you've seen the film, There Will Be Blood. 2007 film, Paul Thomas Anderson. Now, the beginning sequence, for about 15 minutes long, there is no dialogue whatsoever. 
There's just simply this man, this character named Daniel Plainview. And it's suggesting, through this sequence, I believe the director is trying to tell us how we're to think about this man and how we're to think about the film. So at the very beginning, the first nine minutes, Daniel Plainview is alone in a mine trying to find some silver. That's all you see for lots of time is he's digging and you hear this incredible soundtrack in the background, but you just see him working hard. Then he comes out, he crawls out of the mine and he's going to go blow it up, but then he actually falls down into it and he shatters his leg. So then you have this character, Daniel Plainview, with a shattered leg, completely alone in this dark, cavernous space. What is he going to do? He uses all of his might to pull himself up out of that dark place with what he's found in his hand, and he begins to push himself with one leg lying down across this desert terrain. And the, the, it's incredible, the, the, the cinematography is amazing, and what you see is this camera focused in on Daniel Plainview, and as he's crawling along the ground with a shattered leg, and the camera pans up, and all you see is nothing but these mountains, as if to, as if to suggest he is going to go that entire way to make his claim on what he's found. And it teaches us, that sequence, how to think about Daniel Plainview and how to think about that film. Because if you think about it where it ends, Daniel Plainview is again alone in a cavernous space, having fought with someone to the death. And the film ends in many ways where it begins. Beginnings are significant. So the fact that Mark places this parable at the very beginning of all the other parables is something to pay attention to. And here's what I'd like to suggest. Is that the parable finds prominence in this gospel with the explanation intact because it is in fact a parable of how we're to think about, listen to, and understand other parables. So it comes first because it's wanting to say, this is why parables exist And here's how I want you to hear them. And Jesus himself actually says that. Now, if you look at verse, if you want to turn there, Mark chapter 4, you can. If you look at verse 13 in Mark 4, Jesus says this, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? So this one is key to the rest of the parables. At the beginning of the parable, you see Jesus getting on a boat with his disciples and he sits down, which in this time is a way that teachers actually taught. When teachers taught in the first century, rabbis in particular, they would sit down and they would begin to teach their students. So Jesus gets on the boat and he sits down as if to suggest, listen up. And if that's not clear enough, the parable begins with the word, listen. The parable begins with the word listen, and it actually ends with an appeal to hear. So at the beginning and the end of the parable, it's a call to listen and to hear. And then Jesus himself, in the explanation, begins to talk about the word, the seed as the word, and the soils representing different ways of hearing. Listening and hearing are so central to this parable. 
And as I've already mentioned, Jesus offers an explanation, not just of this parable, but of what parables are supposed to do in general. So turn with me, or look at uh, Mark 4, starting in verse 10. And when he, Jesus, was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. Have you ever read that and been confused by that passage? So is Jesus saying he's speaking in parables to intentionally confuse his listeners? And if that's the case, that seems really bizarre and sort of mean, if we were honest, right? But I think actually Jesus is wanting to do something more than just intentionally confuse. And I think that's suggested because here, in this passage, he quotes from Isaiah 6, 9 through 10. Now, one thing to keep in mind is that Scripture is often in dialogue with with itself. So it's important to keep in mind what's come before in Old Testament, what's come after, because the Scripture is constantly having a conversation with itself. And knowing that is actually helpful to understand it. I mean, if we go back to thinking again about stories or art, art is in conversation with other pieces of art. So I've been watching the show Daredevil on Netflix, which is pretty great, and, and I don't like Marvel or superhero um, movies or shows, but I think one of the reasons why I like this is because this show is informed by the mob story or the gangster film. Like, it's so clear that this story is informed by and having a conversation with that. But if you think about other pieces of art, I'm thinking about Cormac McCarthy, a novelist who's in conversation with William Faulkner, with Southern literature. Or you can think about, I don't know if you've seen the new Mad Max, Fury Road. It's in conversation in a weird post-apocalyptic explosion sort of way with the road trip movie. And if you think about, here for some of you who, you know, we get along, Wes Anderson films, his style is really influenced by Peanuts, by Peanuts comic strips. Now, to know those things is actually really fascinating because it actually helps you to watch or to read or to think about things in a different way. Well, Scripture is no different. It offers us clues to how it's in conversation with other pieces of Scripture, and that is to inform what we're reading and and informing how we're to understand. So if you want, turn to Isaiah 6. We're going to go to Isaiah 6. So real brief context of Isaiah. The first five chapters, Isaiah is providing a litany of all the ways in which God's people have rebelled against him. See, God made a covenant with his people Israel. And a covenant is to be held up by two parties. And one party, the people of Israel, actually rejected that covenant in the ways that they pursued their own idols and things that they wanted to do instead of God's vision for life. And so God pronounces all of these ways and judgment upon all the ways in which the people of Israel has rebelled. And then we get to chapter 6. And starting in verse 8. And this is Isaiah's commission as a prophet for God. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? 
Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he, God said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. So Jesus is linking himself and the parables with Isaiah and the prophetic vocation. And that is to shed light on how we're to think about parables and how we're to think about Jesus. Jesus is saying that he himself is a prophet and that his parables are essentially doing a similar thing to what Isaiah's pronouncements will do, which is both reveal what God is going to do and therefore expose people's hearts toward that. So God is going to say, here is what is going to happen. And Jesus is no different. Jesus has pronounced the reality of the kingdom of God. And such a prophetic proclamation is not only providing a pronouncement of that kingdom, but also exposing the listeners and hearers' hearts toward that kingdom. So the prophetic, the prophetic vocation is twofold. It's pronouncing judgment on what has been true and how people have lived, but also a calling back to the covenant, to the way the people of God are supposed to be. And if there is a turn, and if there's repentance, then there is healing. And so the parables operate in that same way. Now this is fascinating if you think about, if you think about Mark chapter 4. Because what's, what it's being suggested is that, that Mark, or that the parable in Mark, is operating as a way to not only pronounce God's kingdom and what it will be like, but also how our hearts will be toward that. And how we respond means everything. So at the end of Mark chapter 3, and then here at this quoting of Isaiah passage, Jesus is using insider-outsider language. Now if you look at Mark chapter 3, the very end of Mark chapter 3, you see that Jesus is inside of a house, and that his parents or his family are outside of a house. And they are calling to him. So then he gets on a boat and he tells this parable, and then he begins to explain it by saying, those who will hear are in some ways are going to be on the inside, and those who fail will be on the outside. There is an insider-outsider language. And you see that also by the disciples, because at the end of the parable, who is gathered around Jesus to hear the explanation? The disciples who want to hear and who want to learn. And it is those who are gathered around Jesus who will gain understanding. I find this extremely fascinating into how the text is working. But then also, what's significant is that the people who who are on the outside have pushed themselves there precisely by how they've responded to Jesus and his pronouncement of the kingdom. See, they aren't outside because Jesus pushed them outside. They are outside because of when Jesus has proclaimed what the kingdom of God will be like and that he is the one bringing the kingdom, people had a different idea of what that would look like and, had want- and wanted nothing to do with it. 
and so have continually rejected Jesus, and they're pushing themselves so far on the outside of where Jesus is that they aren't, it's not possible for them to gain understanding or to hear what Jesus has to say because they never wanted to in the first place. I mean, isn't that interesting that parables actually expose where our hearts already are? Rick Watts says this, the parables will force us into the logical conclusion of where our hearts are. The parables work as a, as a way of sifting how we hear the parables and what Jesus is pronouncing and how we respond, how we hear, will determine where we sit in all of this, where we sit in what Jesus is doing and what he's saying. So with that in mind, and that coming to bear on this parable and all the parables, let's think about the parable of the sower. So like the sower who sows seeds, the word is sown. God has given us, his people, the word, Jesus, and the reality of the kingdom breaking in. Now that word is going forth and has been scattered. And some of the seeds, some of the word will land on the path. Some of the, some of the uh, seed will land on the path and it will not penetrate at all. These are like the people who hear it and it does nothing for them. There's a complete and utter rejection of it. They have not heard. And that is the question as the text goes on, how do you hear? Some seed fell along the rocky ground. And this is like the ground who, who, where the seed falls, people who hear the word of God, the reality of Jesus and the inbreaking kingdom, and it produces, it produces an incredible amount of joy right at the outset. Perhaps this is the person, like I knew in college, who came to know Jesus right away and was so excited, but then quickly realized that it would rub against other areas of his life it would create an incredible amount of tension and potential tribulation or persecution, as Jesus names, and would then run away. I wonder if this is referring to the type of people who have heard the reality of Jesus and the kingdom and want to follow and want to participate. But then, during times of struggle or confusion, begin to slowly and steadily pull themselves away from community. And so their faith is not able to develop or not able to grow. And they live and they think, oh, at some point, I used, I used to know Jesus, but I'm not really sure what happened. Last week, we, had, we got to, had the opportunity to pray with someone who is going through an incredibly difficult time. And I remember thinking, this is the exact opposite, or that was the exact opposite of what Jesus is describing. Here's someone who's going through a difficult, hard time and is impressing the community, people to come and to pray 
because she doesn't know how to do that anymore. But she doesn't want to pull herself away. She needs others. Then other seed, the word, fell upon thorns. And it begins to grow, and then it begins to be choked out. Perhaps this is like the person who hears about Jesus and the reality of the kingdom of God and takes to it and begins to slowly and steadily grow, but then over time there's just too much stuff. Too many things to think about, too many cares or concerns of the world, as Jesus says, and it begins to be choked out. It's not able to grow, and it's certainly not, to be, not able to produce any fruit. Jesus also names deceitfulness of riches as a potential for choking out the seed that fell among the thorns. These cares and concerns, all of these things that we accumulate, all of these, these, yeah, these worries that we have that can actually squelch our growth. I don't know if there's any more frightening metaphor for what can happen to faith than withering. I mean, if you think about that, that is so, that idea of withering, to me, is frightening. Because healthy things can wither. It might take longer, but it's still possible if not attended to correctly. And if you notice in this parable, there is no understanding of time which I think is extremely important. There is no, this is how long it took, and then. It simply suggests that that the seed falls, is received, and hurt a certain way, and then at some point, things will happen to it. I think this is a challenge to me, because at any point, it's possible I might be one of these soils. And I need to take heart and think about that in my own life. Where am I? And notice that how you know you're part of the good soil because some seed fell on the good soil, they began to grow, but they also began to bear fruit. They began to bear fruit. And it's as if the text is asking us the question, are you bearing fruit? Because that is truly the litmus test for whether or not we have heard in the way that Jesus is wanting us to hear. So do we bear fruit? Is there fruit in our lives? Because if we hear in the way that Jesus is pushing us and challenging us to hear, then there will be fruit. And we'll be able to see it and to experience it. And others will be able to see it and experience it as well. Let those of us who have ears, let us hear.